There was a young woman who felt very unworthy. She grew up in a small Galilean village. She was probably a teenager. And she'd heard all her life that one of her own people would rise up and be king. Not just king in Jerusalem, that far off city to the south, but king of the entire world. To the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome, the imperial power that was crushing her people. Someday a person would arise from her brethren who would be king over all the world. She'd heard these stories and she longed for it along with the rest of her family. She wanted to be a subject in his kingdom. She wanted to see him on the throne. She never dreamed she would, though the word had gotten out that maybe this was the time. And so she, like many of her people at that time, a prophet had not been heard of for a long time, but they yearned for one. And then one showed up. They heard about him down in the desert. And he was asking the entire nation of Israel, the entire people of God, to be reconverted. This great prophet had arisen. His name was John, and he was, he was taking people down to a river, or rather, people were streaming out to him, and she heard these stories about him, and she thought, maybe he is the one who will precede the anointed one, the one on whose head the oil of kingship will be placed, the one who will take over the world and rule with peace, the one who will take the swords of all the soldiers, throw them into a furnace, melt them down, and beat them into instruments to, to raise crops, plowshares, to dig up the ground, to feed people rather than to kill people. And so there was a fervor. She wondered in her heart about something that had happened to her long before. Something she'd only told her husband about who had probably since died. And she remembered back when she was that young girl. In this painting that we have here, you have an artist's rendition of the moment that this young Galilean peasant girl encountered the living Spirit of God in the person of an angel, a messenger. And the messenger came to her. In the painting, I love the painting because of its simplicity. She looked so, so shocked, so hopeful, but so surprised, yet so passive and open. And this is how it happened. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called 
the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him, your son, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, your son's kingdom, will never end. Now, if I had been Mary, I would have been thinking, how could the son of a Galilean peasant, not even someone living in Jerusalem, be the king of all Israel, let alone the king of all the world? That's what I would have been thinking, but she was thinking much more practically. She said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I mean, she figured if she could have a baby as a virgin, he could take care of kingship and thrones and all that. She was trying to figure out, I'm not married yet, I'm betrothed, but I'm not married yet. And, and, I, and I, I know a few things, and I know these things don't happen. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary answered, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. I'm the servant of God. I'll do what you tell me. May it happen to me as you've said. She believed the unbelievable. And when you think about it, just about everything we believe is unbelievable. We believe that this young woman who had never had intimate relationships with a man gave, was conceived a child inside of her by the Holy Spirit of God. That's unbelievable. But we believe it. We believe that God chose a people group living 2,000 years ago and decided that he would visit this planet through them and through the poorest of them. This carpenter and his wife up in the northern territories where they speak with a funny Galilean accent. And they live in a little town later called Nazareth, which is so small and so uh, practically unmentioned in the history books of that century. It was next to a large and prosperous Roman city that ironically is never mentioned in the New Testament because Nazareth was the place where Jesus grew up. She must have wondered until she began to show. She began to feel that things were changing within her. She must have wondered for a while, could this possibly be? And then she knew it was true. And you know the story that she and her husband in the ninth month went down to Bethlehem for political reasons, actually, because a census by the, by the oppressive Romans was being taken. And so they went down there. And you know how the, there was no room in the inn and they had that child in that barn, in that stable. And she laid him in a feeding trough for his first bed. 
But somewhere in that stable, there must have come a moment, much like the moment I saw my daughter have when she reached last August and she, she took her child up in her arms and she was so overcome with joy and so overcome with awe. And she just kept saying over and over again, my baby, it's my baby. And Mary must have looked into his eyes. But I wonder what she knew when she looked into his eyes. The angel had just told her that this baby, born in a barn with the smell of cow dung lingering in the air, that this baby would be king. And as she held him like this, as she cradled him in her arms, I, I wonder if she really knew all that was going to happen. Mary, did you know? Did you know what would happen to this baby? This child you delivered will soon deliver you. I don't think she did know. I think she had a hint. And I think like in this picture by Latour, in this painting by Latour, she had to hold her son with an open hand. She had to offer him up. She had to let go. From the very beginning. But little did she know that the sword would pierce her side. Figuratively, but very realistically, when it pierced his side, literally. What a strange way for God to come. It's never been heard of before. It's lost on us because we've heard it so many times. God, when he decided that he wanted to make himself known in the most full manner, decided for that this race of people, this human race of people, that he would come just like we came. That he would be knit together in a womb. That he, though he was rich, would become poor for our sakes. He, though he was at the right hand of God, though he created the universe, he would, he would submit himself to being created in human flesh and blood and corpuscle and sinew and muscle, matter. If you ever wondered about your own worth, Dick Foth last week said something I thought was tremendous. He said... You may be unworthy, but you're not worthless. You, you may not have lived up to the way God would have you live. In fact, the matter is, you didn't. You haven't. But you are of great worth. Because the scriptures say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Well, what was this God like? God with us, we're told. What was this God like who came to earth in the form of a child? He came and he made demands on people. He grew up and he shocked them. He barged in in this painting, in this moment. If you can picture the moment before Jesus came into the picture, the men around the table were just counting up their loot counting up the money they'd stolen from their fellow Jewish workers. And Jesus comes in and he points the finger 
at Matthew, the man in the beard, on, on the left-hand side of this picture and that picture both. With the light shining on his face, Matthew is looking up and over at Jesus, but Jesus is saying, you come and follow me. He didn't just come and say, well, Matthew, tell me about your business. How's the tax collecting going? You know, I'd like you to come to synagogue on Saturday, and if you'd tithe some of this loot, that would really help us build a few more in some of the poorer villages. And, uh, you know, if you could say your prayers and if you'd say the Shema when you got up in the morning, that would really help us out, kind of set a good example for the people. But then you can just kind of keep on doing this. No. He said, Matthew, you leave everything behind and you come and follow me. He didn't say, I've got a really great new religion. I'm going to call it Christianity, but we haven't let anybody know that yet. And what I want you to do is sign up for it. And here's the deal. I've got some of these things that people are going to understand a little later on. There's about 18 of them. And if you can just sign off on each one of them. Yeah, I believe that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Born of a virgin. That's right. Died on the cross under Pontius Pilate. Resurrected. Ascended. Reigned from the right hand of God. Come again to judge the quick and the dead. If you can just kind of sign off on those... You can just kind of keep on collecting taxes. That's no problem. Don't worry about it. But if you can just kind of say, yes, oh, that makes sense to me, then you'll be in my group. No. He said, right now is the acceptable time for your release. Right now is the favorable time of God. Right now, you get up and you leave everything behind and you follow me. You'll notice in the picture, some of the men haven't even looked up. Some of them are still, they're so grubbing on their money. They haven't even seen Jesus. Well, wouldn't you hate it to be one of those guys later on? The Son of God walks into your office. And you're so busy looking at your Excel spreadsheet that you never look up. But Matthew looks up and he's pointing to himself. Just like some of you may be here. You know, I believe that God wants some of you to leave everything, your dreams, your visions for yourself, what you thought was going to be your career, your hopes, your aspiration. I think he's walking into the dorm rooms. I think he's walking into the classrooms. I think he's walking into some professor's offices and he's saying, you follow me. Leave some of those tawdry dreams of yours behind. Leave some of your self-manufactured securities behind. Leave some of your fears behind. And almost all, kind of like you'd leave your sins behind too. And you come and follow me and I'm going to do something great with your life. You see, when Jesus came, he came and he demanded some things. He didn't just come to speak to us about some issues. He met some people in some other circumstances. In this painting by Rembrandt, you'll remember. This woman did not have Jesus burst in on her. She had someone else burst in while she was committing adultery. And they drug her to the temple. And they placed her before Jesus. And here, Jesus, you'll notice in the painting... That the religious person to Jesus' right 
or to Jesus' left, actually, with the black robe there, is pointing at the woman. He's got his left hand on her head as if to say, look, look at this trophy, this sinner. Look at her, Lord. Can you believe this? The law of Moses said we should stone her to death. What do you say? But we've got him on this one. I mean, because he's demanding people leave everything to follow him. He's demanding that they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's clearly a prophet. We're going to catch him on this one because he talks about love and forgiveness. But if he forgives this woman, he'll break the law of Moses. But if he goes with the law of Moses, it's going to really kind of make uh, some of those things about love and compassion and forgiveness that he seems to be talking a lot about look a little dim. So here Jesus makes demands, not on the woman, interestingly, but on her accusers. And you know the story. He just says, look, the first one of you that hasn't sinned, pick up a rock and throw it right at her head. And then he just stands there. And it's a showdown. It's a face-off. And it says, starting with the oldest, I think they had more sins to think of. They began to leave one by one until this whole scene would have been empty and only Jesus and only the woman would be there. And he said, where's your accusers? She said, sir, there are none. He said, neither do I condemn you. Some of the greatest words ever uttered. Neither do I condemn you. Paul later said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for you. No condemnation when you get up and you leave the tax booth. When you're caught in your worst sin, if you turn to Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Only new life. Only forgiveness. Only an erasing sweep across the sins of your life. And a fresh start. That's a good deal, isn't it? That's what Jesus came to proclaim. That God has a really good deal for people. It's called the gospel. That's what it means. Good deal. It's a blue light special. You can't turn it down. I mean, it's very expensive, but it's the same cost for everybody. It's the same cost for Dr. Wilson as it is for Professor Hodson. It's the same cost for every student in here, for me, for Diane. It's everything. What does it cost to get forgiveness? Everything. All your dreams, all your fears, all your sins, all your aspirations, your whole life. But what do you get in exchange? You get the love of God flooding your hearts. Rembrandt made this great painting, perhaps my favorite. It, uh, it's in the L'Hermitage in what is now St. Petersburg. If you want to give yourself a present this Christmas, get Andre Nowen's book called The Return of the Prodigal. It's where I got the idea for this entire series of art, by the way, because this painting is on the front of the book. The entire book is just, he sat in front of the real picture, which apparently is about the size of one of these screens. Probably about the size of this, the way we have it projected. And he sat there and studied it for a long time got permission, and he just pondered and prayed and then wrote this book called The Return of the Prodigal. It's only, it's a, it'd be a wonderful present to give yourself for Christmas. 
What did this baby who was born to Mary come to do? He came to tell a lot of people that there's a father waiting for him. And in this painting, Rembrandt reminds us that however long the journey is, and look at the feet of this man. His shoes have fallen off. He's come a long way. Look at his clothes. They're torn. Look at his father's royal robes. He's rich. He's prosperous. He's dignified. He's the patriarch. This boy has squandered his money, the father's money, which he stole from the father, really, by taking his inheritance early on prostitutes. And he wound up feeding pigs, and he decided he would come a long way back. And you know what? Some of you here in this room today are a long way off. You know, it's interesting. You're at a Christian college, that is, a college that holds Christ preeminent. And you go to Christian classes, and you take Christian you learn Christian. You learn Christian theology, Christian history. You learn a whole system of thinking about Jesus. But in your heart, you're a long way off. And you know who you are. Maybe you grew up in the Father's house. And you said, I've had it with this nonsense. I mean, I'll go through the motions. I'll come to chapel so I can register next semester. And I'll get those chapel tapes and fast forward through them and write down a few thoughts for Bart. You don't fool him. You forget that I was devious too. But in your heart, you're in a far country. And you're a long way off. And Jesus comes and says, come on back. You don't have to come back to some of the stuff you thought the Father's house was all about. All you have to do is come back to the Father himself. And when you do, you won't find a probationary period. He won't be saying to you, I want you to come to me only when you get it all right, only when you get cleaned up. He says, come to me and nuzzle in. Put your head into my breast. Put your head into my chest. Lay your ear upon my heart. Listen to the heartbeat that I have, which is a heartbeat of love. And now in this close-up of that same scene, you can see just faintly in the shadows the look on the man's face, the prodigal's face. You can see the hands emanating love. All of the light comes from the father's face and the father's hands in this painting of Rembrandt. And look at the light on the, on the man's back. It's just radiating in. And if you can see from where you are, just the slight look of warmth and arrival and comfort. I've come home. Jesus came to tell us there's a place for us. There's a place for us at home to nuzzle in. Jesus came to look us in the eye. He came to look us in the eye and call us not to a system, not even to a theology, but to himself. He is the good news. What can you give Jesus Christ this Christmas? You know, there's only one gift you can really give him. You know, and it's not, it's not what you can do for him. He really doesn't need it. I mean, he did create the universe without you. 
It's certainly not your money or the money you're going to make. And what is money to Jesus Christ? He created oxygen. He created the sun. He created solar systems. He doesn't need your dollar bills. Paul said it this way. He said, I beg you, my brothers and sisters, as the only act of intelligent worship, to present your whole selves to him as a living sacrifice, completely acceptable to him and perfect. This is your spiritual worship. I beg you, my brothers, with your eyes wide open to the mercies of God, my sisters, I beg you to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, as an act of intelligent worship, to come to him with everything you have, any cost, whatever road it takes, you name it, you come to him. And you say, but my shoes are falling off. I can't come to him now. I, I was drunk on my face this weekend. It'd be kind of hypocritical, wouldn't it, on Monday to then come to Jesus? I mean, don't I maybe have to not drink for a couple more weeks and show that I can do it? No, he says, come to me. Yeah, but I had sex with my, my boyfriend this weekend. And it wasn't the first time. I mean, wouldn't it be kind of hypocritical to bring myself to Jesus as a present? It's not, not a very good present right now. And he says, come to me. Whatever road you have to take, whatever the cost to get there, you come to me. And for your brokenness, I'll give you love. For your shame, I'll give you dignity. For the horror that you feel when you really are alone and you think about yourself, I will give you laughter and joy and celebration because I've invited you to myself and I'll take you into the Father's house. But the cost is high. It's everything you have. Jesus said you can't be my disciple unless you say goodbye to all your possessions. He said, any man or woman who wants to follow me, but wants to love their mother, their father, their brothers, their wives, their sons, their daughters more than me, is not worthy to be called my disciple. You have to love Jesus Christ above all the people you know. That's a high cost. I love some people a lot. I really love my wife. 28 years now, almost. Just this weekend, we said, you know, I think we're falling in love. But Jesus says, Bart, to come to me, you have to, your love for Linda has to look like hate in comparison to your love for me. And if she stands in your way of following me, you come to me. We have to love Christ before possessions. We have to love Christ before others. And probably most difficult of all, we have to love Christ before ourselves. He says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself every single day, 24 hours of the day, 60 minutes of the hour, 60 seconds of the minute. You have to deny yourself and follow me. 
So the cost is high. But he just says, come. The beauty of the cost is that you get to come just as you are. As you've heard me say hundreds of times, quoting good friend Brennan Manning, you come as you are, not as you should be. Come as you are to Jesus Christ. Bring everything to Jesus Christ as a present this Christmas and offer it to him. Come as you are, not as you should be, but he will begin to work in your heart and create in you a new heart, as Jeremiah says. Uh, with a new covenant written on the tablets of your heart. And you will become who you should be, little by little, more and more, as you practice following Jesus with a few others. I'd like to have the uh, women's ensemble come up. And they're going to sing a song for you. It's a joyful song. But it's a song that says exactly what I'm saying here at the end of this talk. That as Jesus looks out at us and says, come to me, he wants you to come via any road it takes and at any cost. There's only one thing he asks when you come to him. And that's that you have to turn away from a life that would not include him at the center. Because it's the only place he'll come to live, is at the center. So it does mean turning away from some things in order to turn toward his face. It means renouncing some things. Some things that are pretty pleasurable at the outset, but bring death and shame and guilt afterwards and more and more. And finally, if you keep going down that road, they bring an extinguishing of true vision and hardness of heart and the inability to experience intimacy with anyone. So you do have to leave some things behind. You have to look up from the things holding your attention, whether they're good or bad, and you have to look toward Jesus to come to him. That's called repentance. You have to turn away from the things that have distracted and held your attention and that are not worthy of your lives. And when you do turn from those toward Christ, He will begin to open up avenues for your lives. And you will be a person who grows from the inside out into His likeness. A person who grows in love, a person who grows in forgiveness, a person who grows in mercy, a person who grows in patience, a person who grows in kindness, a person who is not a list keeper, who says, oh, they did this wrong, they did that wrong, they did this wrong, who keeps no account of wrongs, a person who is not arrogant but humble, a person who has a clear vision, a person who has a vision that can bring life rather than death. That's who you can become. But ironically, it all focuses down to one decision. A decision that may have to be made thousands of times, but it's the same decision every time. It's to turn away from things that are less worthy of you and turn toward the only thing that is worthy of you, God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. And to allow him to become molded from within in your life. I'd like to take two or three minutes here and just have us be quiet.
If the painting of the face of Christ is a distraction to you, just don't look at it. If it's a help, look at it. It's only one rendition of Jesus. But I'd like you to ask the question, can I bring myself to Jesus Christ as a Christmas, as a Christmas present to him this year? And I want you to count the cost. I want you to look square in the face the things you have to leave behind in order to turn to him.